Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you all could join us today. Um, <clears throat> my name is Pastor Rusty. I, I am not the regular preacher here, although I do preach uh, frequently enough. Uh, Pastor Matt is away on vacation for two weeks, uh, so we're glad to have him uh, get some much-needed rest, particularly with the recent events that have been happening uh, at renovation. Uh, for those of you that are new with us today or have not heard, um, we are in the process of a merger with the Refuge City Church, uh, which is downtown. Um, we are hoping to merge with them in August, September. Um, so we're excited about that, and with that uh, has brought a lot of uh, increased activity around here and different things to have done. So for him to be able to get away and get some rest uh, for the moment is certainly super helpful. Um, I'm glad that you were able to join us today. Uh, last week we had a membership uh, covenant renewal service where we were welcoming Michael into membership. And uh, I'm sorry to say that we're going to have to rescind his membership because we found out that um, he's not seen the Princess Bride. And that <laughs> it's that fine print in there, you know. Um, so I, I'm sorry that we missed that in the interview process. Um, but, uh, yeah, with that... Um, this week, we're going to continue in our new series. Uh, this is part of First Peter. We're continuing to walk through that uh, letter that Peter wrote. And uh, with that, let's, let's pray together, and we'll get underway. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. Father, your grace has been on display uh, in this church, as we've talked about last week and before, um, for 10 years. Uh, and Father, beyond that, you have been good to your people for all time. Uh, they are special to you. Father, you uh, paid dearly for them. They were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we, we stand today in that grace. Um, Father, as we encounter this passage and, and talk about being stewards of, uh, of grace, what does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? Uh, Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, uh, that you would encourage us. Uh, Father, that we would stand well and boldly and courageous, but, Father, gently, as we're going to see and uh, most importantly, full of hope. Father, the grace that you have given comes with hope. And Father, let us stand firmly in that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had, uh, I believe it was Kirsten Reed, a passage from chapter 1. One of my fears in these sermon series, uh, as we walk through books, we, we do different type things. In Acts, for instance, we walked up basically through a chapter a week. Uh, that gets us through quite a bit. Um, but for like Ephesians, we basically went almost verse by verse uh, and spent the better part of uh, two years in that book. Here we are moving relatively quickly. But one of the dangers in the level of which we are flying here is that we lose track of, of what's going on. We get lost in the weeds from week to week. And that's understandable as we're diving deep into just a few verses every week. 
uh, it, it gets hard to forget where you, where you came from. Is if, you're, if you're walking through the book, you get lost in what's going on, forgetting what was behind, what was north, and how to get back. And so I want to open with a challenge, particularly for those of you that have been walking with us. But no matter where you come from, whatever you are learning in, or whatever came before today, my question is, how are you applying these texts weekly? How are you doing this weekly? Right, we talked about last week the fact that uh, the, the whole point of what this comes to, one of the, the crowning jewels that Peter puts before us is that we get God. That we get God. And so when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to living out our faith weekly, it is an all-the-time thing. We are united with Christ Jesus. We are in Him. And we get God. So it cannot be something that we only do on Sunday. It can't even only be something that we do in special events or disasters where we rally together. It has to be an everyday thing. And that is going to be bearing down on us shortly when we get into verse 15. But coming from last week, the idea that we get God means that we have to do something with what we get every week. And so what did you work on this past week? How did you grow? For those of you that have been walking with us through 1 Peter, how are you tracing your way through the letter? Can you, in your mind's eye, see the path from chapter 1 through to where we are about in the halfway point in chapter 3? You're tracing his argument. He's building on something. We've seen almost a pattern that Peter likes to do of bringing up some Old Testament and Jewish background, of which Peter certainly is uh, firmly established in, applying it to us in suffering, and then showing us the example and fulfillment in Christ. And we're beginning this same cycle again today as we look at what this is for us to walk well in suffering, setting us up for next week. Uh, I believe Pastor Dave Graham from Refuge City will be here speaking. He's, he, he has the, the fullness of that, the, the realization of it in Christ, starting in verse 18. And so we see this pattern, and, and I hope that in, verse, in chapter 1 you can see that thread working all the way through the book, particularly as we are into some very practical applications from the idea of submission and authority back into chapter 2 at the end, into the marriage relationship and how submission and authority and leadership works in that, then into the church and into government and into life. And so we want to take an opportunity to, to stop and, and, and mark what's going on, where we've been, and where we should be going. So my, my encouragement to you today would be to gold star something today. That's what I talk about in my DNA. What was the gold star for you this week? What is something that, that the Spirit convicted you on, encouraged you with, that really stood out? The Spirit is at work today. How uh, is He moving in your heart? I think another option that you could do would be to look for a challenge for yourself, and then look for an encouragement for others. There is going to be plenty in the text today as regards to ourselves. And the danger is that we're going to take those things that are meant for us and make them for other people. So how can we challenge ourselves and find something to encourage others with? That's what we're called to as we see in chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. This idea of being built together. Take this passage, take the text, take your weekly learning of the scriptures Build yourself up and others as you're challenged and encouraging others. And so as we launch into today, we can't just start with 13. We have to see some of, particularly verse 12, 
Uh, but 10 through 12, I want to read the close of last week's text to us together. In verse 10, it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And then particularly verse 12, this is, this is the reward, as it were, for what we get. This is what blessing looks like. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When we look at this past week, we see that we get God. Remember the danger for husbands who don't lead well in their, with their wives, who don't care well for them and, and live in an understanding way. Their prayers are hindered. The Lord does not have ears open to their prayer. And we see the reality of what that relationship looks like, what we're fighting for in our relationship and communion with God. We get God. His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to our prayer. If that doesn't stun you in some fashion, verse 15 is going to be hard for us today. The idea that we get God is the foundation for where we're going today. And it is simply that we have to know the why that we talked about several weeks ago. We have to understand that we get God. And the first thing I want you to see is that we should know that you are blessed. Know that we are blessed. Know that you are blessed. I'm speaking particularly for those who would fall into the category of verse 10 through 12. We are talking about believers in Christ Jesus who are walking in faithfulness, who are turning away from evil and doing good. Seeking peace and pursuing it. It's not just the members of this church. It's the members of God's church. But it's these type of people. And so when we talk about this idea of knowing that you are blessed, I'm speaking to that category of people. But I think it's important that we ask the question, how are you blessed? How are you blessed? Now, I frequent craft shows where I sell coffee and our, our, the wood stuff that we make. I frequent Michael's, Hobby Lobby, Target. I'm, I'm offended when I see a table at the front of Michael's uh, that has a sign that says on a table, husband waiting area. Um, I want like everything in that store. Like I can pick up a hobby like it's my job. Um, I'm, I'm good at that. I enjoy that. And all over these places, what I'm getting at is that I see these blessed signs, right? Have you seen those? They're signs. There's, there's mugs and shirts and Yeti wine coolers. They're just blessed, right? Blessed. How are you blessed? If you have one of those, that's fine. We, we sell them as well. Um, <laughs> if you have one from us, then you're truly blessed. Um, I'm going to get driven out of the, flip the tables in the church. Um, if you have one of those, I'm not coming down on you. The question is, is what are you, what are you saying? Like, what do you mean by that? Just, ah, blessed. It's just a feeling? What is that? When we, when we have that and we display it, what is it that we're trying to, to convey, right? What are we thinking of? Because there's, there's some message that we at least believe before we purchase one of those things um, that says, you know, I am blessed. What is that? What does it mean? Because there, there's that style, that... that, that <laughs> That look of the home that, that comes with those types of decorations conveys some kind of sense of our value, or our personhood. Some, if you don't think you're blessed, you're not going to get that, right? 
So what, so what does it mean to say that? And I think maybe a better question would be, what would make you not feel blessed? What takes you into the store where you're looking at it and it says thankful, gratitude, blessed? And you're looking at the blessed one and you're going, yeah, no. And you just, you go, right? What is it that does that? What about if you open your dresser drawer and you see that shirt, blessed, and you see your other shirt, Ohio State, maybe Ninja Turtles, whatever. And you look at the blessed one and you're like, not today. And you pick up the other one. You open the cupboard, you have your, your mug, right, and it says bless. Then you have your other one, the many faces of Darth Vader. And you look at blessed and you say, not today, mug. What makes you not feel blessed? What puts you squarely in those categories? Because what those things are, are your everyday just rhythm and pattern of value in who you are and what you expect. And so there's so much that comes between, with one word of bless. What does it mean to you? What does it mean? Because in many cases, it's easy to feel blessed, but that feeling and even that actual blessing, whatever it may be, that is truly a blessing, can't be what we rest on. It can't be. That's not what it means to know, as our text tells us, that we are blessed. Let's look at two scenarios that we see here. Verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, I think for most of us at first reading of this passage, we're going, no one can hurt us. It's the Romans idea, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? That type of thing is what's coming in. That's not what he means. It's really a rhetorical question with the kind of force of, is there really anyone who will harm those who are eager to do good, right? So we have the, the, the tornado relief workers that are out here. Is anyone really upset at them? They're doing good, right? Who's against those who are doing good? It implies that harm's not the normal expectation for usually those who do what is right are rewarded, not punished. Now, I think that's helpful for us as we look at the world, that this is an evidence of common grace, right? In our world at large, as we expect, for those that do what is right, we receive reward. And for those that do not, they receive punishment. And that should be the case for us. This is blessing, rightful blessing. And ideally, it should be the norm for the Christian. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Our lives aren't supposed to be wild and outrageous or fierce or crazy or whatever. They are supposed to be peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. And when we live in such a way of doing good and not experiencing suffering, praise God for the great grace that is. That should be the norm, ideally, for the Christian life. And listen, I, we, we talk with people in the counseling and, and just coaching and encouragement with our leaders don't underestimate the power and blessing of just doing what you're supposed to. That's called faithfulness and wisdom. Those are biblical categories. There's, there's room for that in the Christian life, that when you do good, you get good. One of the, the challenges for me in my walk with Christ is that I have this kind of karma Christianity aspect going on, where when I do good, I expect good back. It's not how it works. But what we do see is a sowing and reaping principle. When we sow good, we receive good in general. And so the idea for scripture for this is faithfulness, faithfulness and living in wisdom. When we do that, 
we will see great power and blessing of just doing what you're supposed to do. Now, for those of you with kids, I think you experience that. Like, just, just, you know better, right? How many times does that come out of your mouth? You know better. Why would you do that? You know where this is going to end up. Live in wisdom, child. Live in faithfulness. And good things will come your way. I want to give you all the ice cream that you could possibly eat. I want to give you every single sucker that we see. Every time you see candy at the store, I want to say, yes, child, yes, please, take it all. But I can't. I can't because you're screaming, right? Stop screaming. Good things will come. That's not bribing. Um, (laughs) We see this general principle of faithfulness and wisdom. When we live in wisdom, we can expect, ideally, that this is the pattern for the Christian life. But the second scenario here in verse 14, I think, is what lands us particularly on this idea of blessing. Verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, I try not to dig into the weeds too much in, in, in our preaching, but there's a specific verb type that is being used here. And he's, he, Peter is specifically speaking of an event that he considers unlikely. Right? He, the, if you should suffer. And then he doubles down by saying, even if, right? Even if you should suffer. So, unlikely, very unlikely. His point is that it, generally, suffering of all kinds may be widespread. And indeed, we know that we will receive suffering in this world, as Jesus says. But the, even though the world is broken and we have trouble, suffering for righteousness' sake is a separate category. Suffering for righteousness' sake, doing good and suffering because of it is supposed to be an unlikely event. It's supposed to be an unlikely event, but it does happen. It does happen. And Peter feels the need to address it specifically here. One commentator says that indeed the spectacle of moral beauty does not disarm all the wicked. They are often even irritated by the radiance of a virtue that condemns them. You're doing good. You're living the way that you're supposed to do. And people all of a sudden come at you and say, oh, you're so high and mighty, right? Why are they offended at you doing something good? Indeed, I think the truth of that is the fact that the law stands. The Old Testament stands. The law of God condemns men. And when we live in accordance with the law of God, even in the New Testament law of God, as we live like Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's offensive Because it shines light into darkness. It shines light into a dark life that does not match that virtue, and it's offensive. The gospel is offensive first. We've seen that it was a stumbling block to men, as we talked about several weeks ago. And the idea of living a righteous life will bring suffering. So you will suffer for righteousness' sake. Let's land on this blessing. So we have... Doing good and not receiving suffering, and we have doing good and receiving suffering. These are these two scenarios. But in this particular one, it says, if you suffer, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. I I think a better translation of this particular passage is that if you suffer, you blessed ones. It's not necessarily conditional. They're saying, he's saying, the force of the passage is that those who suffer for righteousness' sake, are blessed. You're the blessed ones, as it were, from the Sermon on the Mount. You're the blessed ones. 
And it most naturally in the text indicates blessing which comes at the same time as the suffering, not after it. And I think that's one of the challenges as we approach suffering. We say, well, if I just get through this now, then later I will get. And that is true in the sense of our final reward, as we talked about at the end of chapter 1. But it's not that far. If I suffer now, I am blessed. It comes at the same time. It comes at the same time. The blessing includes the favor of God in general, but more specifically, Peter's readers, we also should think of the blessing promise, uh, the, the blessing promised to the righteous one. Verse 12. That's why we started there, right? The blessing that we've already got, the fact that we are the blessed ones, is verse 12. You've got God. You've got God. That makes you a blessed one. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been paid for by the blood of him through repentance and faith. You have God. You are a blessed one. And so remembering that in the moment when we suffer is where we understand that if you suffer, you blessed one. You see, this idea of blessing, what does it mean for you? In the Greek, it specifically has a sense of being blessed, happy, right? With an emphasis on the blessing which comes from God. You are blessed because you've got God. You should be happy in God. That is the only way that we get through suffering. This is the anti-prosperity gospel. If you have wealth, you have blessing. You have health, you have blessing. If you have these things, you have blessing. That's the prosperity gospel. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Peter tells us that if you have suffering, you are blessed. And particularly for righteousness' sake. As we're going to talk about in verse 17, if you act like a fool, you'll receive death. That's how it goes. When we're talking about righteousness' sake, though, we get God. We are blessed. We can be happy in God. I know you're asking, how is suffering blessing? It's like this. You may think that you believe in God. But when suffering comes, it separates out the impurities in your faith. And you see that, well, it's really my reputation. It's really my success. It's my wealth. It's this person in my life. It's my approval. It's, it's power or comfort or control or whatever. These are the things that I'm actually really believing in. And that's the reason why I'm up and down and up and down all the time, why I'm so anxious, why I'm so angry. Suffering has a way of revealing that which we build our life on. You know it from the scriptures. When the storm comes, it washes away the sandy house or the one on the rock. This is the exact point that's, that's happening here. From chapter 1, what I had Kirsten read is referring to this idea of this refining fire of suffering that we've seen. is blessing because it's grace from God to show us on what we stand. In the counseling room, I have people that come in. I'm so anxious. I'm so angry. I'm up and down. I'm up and down. And at the end of the day, what this is, ex is uncovering is that your hope, your faith, your blessing, these things that you're really believing in are not God. They're up and down because your bank account is up and down. They're up and down because your promotion is up and down. And we find these things that are grace that help separate these impurities in your 
faith and in your life. It is not blessing to stand on your riches for all of your time here, only to find out that there's nothing underneath you. That's not blessing. That's tragedy. Tim Keller says this, he says, When suffering comes, it brings out the impurities in your faith. It shows you how little you really believe in God. His love is not tangible. His power is not tangible to you. If it really was, if your faith was what it should be, you could handle life, but you're not. So when the suffering comes, when you're in the fire, it brings out those impurities. And so what that means for us is that in suffering, you get a hold of God. And you say, I want you to be my real wealth so that I don't go up and down all the time over financial wealth. I want you to be my real beauty. I want you to be my real love. I really want to know you in a way I haven't known you before because then I can handle life. It's the idea of Jacob wrestling with God and grabbing hold of him. The blessing that he was after was not riches and prosperity and health and land. It was God himself. God, right now I'm so fragile. I can't handle life without you. I can't stand on these other things. And so in other words, the impurities come to the surface and we skim them off the top and we take hold of God. You blessed one, you've got God. And so the encouragement to us then is to what? Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This reference that Peter's pulling is not the first time he's pulled this. He did earlier when he talked about the idea of the cornerstone being a stumbling block. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8. In particular for today, we're looking at verses 12 now and 13 in a moment. I'll go ahead and read both. It says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, the original context for us in Isaiah is that the, this is a warning not to fear what the faithless people fear, right? Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy or fear what they fear. The things that they fear, don't fear those. The things that they call conspiracy or trouble, don't worry about those things. But the context that Peter takes it into is a kind of a switch. Now, we know that the, Old, that the New Testament helps us understand and helps us to explain what the Old Testament means because the New Testament is the fulfillment in Christ of the law. And so as we look back and we see that the context is flipped, we see what Peter is trying to do. This context does not concern avoiding the groundless fears which unbelievers experience, those, those fears, those those conspiracies it is instead counseling Christians not to be afraid when facing hostile opposition. That's the context, right? What he's giving us right now is that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, opposition, that's our current context. So the sense that we get now is do not fear a fear of them, or do not fear them. Both of those work. And it's certainly an acceptable way of understanding what he's going at. Don't have a fear of them. Why? Nor be troubled. The particular term here for us, when we think troubled, I don't know how you interpret that. That's not always in our context. When we think troubled in the text, we want to think shaken up or disturbed or, or frightened, right? 
troubled when you, when you wake up from a loud crack of, of lightning and thunder at night. You're shaken up. You're disturbed. You're, you're frightened. That troubledness. He says, nor be troubled. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, how? <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. What are you appealing to, Jesus? What is it that makes me not troubled? Because that's a terrifying thing. Why should I not be troubled of it? He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. I, I feel this often. Often. I, as, a, as a pastor, we have an intermediary role of sort. Not a mediator between you and God. That, that's a different religion. Um, <laughs> for us... We have this the shepherding aspect, right? Where we have a rod and a staff, where we are an under-shepherd under Christ, yet we are still a sheep of his. And so we, we kind of bounce back and forth of, of being a sheep and being a shepherd. And as a shepherd, we have different responsibilities than, than the sheep, uh, particularly oversight of the sheep. We have to give an account for the souls of which are particularly members at Renovation Church that we have been entrusted with in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We have to give an account to God for how we oversee this flock there are times that I have to use a rod and a staff. They're different. You guys don't, as sheep at least, don't have rods or staffs for that matter. And that's going to be important later as we see the way that we relate to people. But for me, I have to exercise the rod and the staff in defense of the flock of God. Now, when I go into these meetings that I know are going to be trouble, what's Sometimes you're just blindsided. Other times you know that it's confrontation. And I'm not really a confrontational dude, um, as at least most of you would probably know. Um, I get troubled. I get troubled. Now, I, I, I've been a pastor for 12, 13 years. I, I walked in a, so many things of faithfulness of God. I, I, have, I have picture after picture after picture after picture after picture of God's faithfulness in my life. And I know... That when I get into that meeting and I sit down, if the Spirit will come out. He gives me the words to say. He lets me know how to, to go. I can rest and trust in that. And every time that I sit down on one of those, I experience that. I know it. I feel it. I love it. But he doesn't let me feel that until I get there. And I'm all sorts of trouble. And I'm talking to Matt before one that I had to go to alone. And... Um, it's, it's certainly nice when we can do it as a team, uh, whether with him or with, with Pastor Greg. But I'm like, Matt, I know that when I get there, the Spirit is, is going to be faithful. I can trust him. <laughs> Why can't I now? And, and there's, this, there's this heaviness that comes with, with confrontation, that comes with battling back darkness. There's another one that, that happened just last week with the tornadoes. We had the tornadoes right on Monday night, and I had a, a really rough meeting on Tuesday morning. And I, on Tuesday morning, I'm, I'm showering, getting dressed and ready, and I'm just thinking to myself, I'm troubled. <laughs> I'm troubled. And I feel absolutely ridiculous. I just witnessed overnight the power of God in ways that I wasn't even aware of yet before I started driving around and got TV and Internet back. Just from what I experienced the crazy power of God in nature, and I'm troubled, trembling over a man. The Spirit rebuked me in that moment. This is something that we feel often. And what is the answer? 
What's the answer to that troubledness? It can't simply just be, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, he says in John 14.1. So we end on the question of how do I believe on you? I think Piper, John Piper has a really helpful picture for this passage. He says, picture this text as a sandwich with a piece of bread on top, then a piece of meat, and then underneath another piece of bread, almost like the first one. The top piece of bread says, don't be afraid of your adversaries. Don't be troubled. The bottom piece of bread says, always be ready to make a case for the hope you feel inside. Now compare these two pieces of bread. The top piece says, don't be afraid. But in order to not be afraid, you have to have some reason to be hopeful. The bottom piece says, be ready to make a case for your hope. But in order to make a case for your hope, you have to have some reason to be hopeful. In other words, both of these pieces of bread are commanding us to do the same thing. Namely, do what we need to do to have our hearts brimming with hope instead of fear. The second thing I want you to see today is to and hope in God. And hope in God. Know you are blessed and hope in God. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This phrase is also an adaptation of part of Isaiah 8. This is the second half, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And so this sense of fear or reverence for the Lord rather than fear of men is reinforced. But Peter stops short of applying to Christ the admonitions to fear the Lord in Isaiah 8.13. He doesn't say that. Honor Christ the Lord is holy. Isaiah keeps going further with the fear and the reverence aspect. What God wants here from Isaiah is for the prospect of offending God to be a much more dreadful thing to him than the prospect of being persecuted by men. This is the way that Isaiah was to reverence God in his heart. The degree of his reverence for God was the same as the degree of his desire not to displease God. In the same way that we want our children to obey us, not simply for obedience sake, but to honor your mother and father, the same thing is true here. God doesn't want us to just obey to get good things. He doesn't want us to obey just because he said so. He wants us to obey because it pleases him. And to displease him is a sad thing. And as we teach our children, the essence of sin is that it separates us from God. And that's the, that's the crux of the gospel. You don't get God if you're separated from God. But for those that live in repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you get God. And in the same way that as our children disobey us as parents, it separates our relationship. So walking in obedience helps restore that relationship. We get fruitful relationship there. Now, if we look at this passage from Isaiah, why? Why would God be so displeased and offended if Isaiah feared men? Well, his answer is uh, significantly different than ours with our kids. But the principle stands. You see, the answer is that God had made many promises to his people and should have taken away their fear and filled them with confidence and hope. And so if Isaiah feared man, it would show that he doesn't trust God's promise. And when someone doesn't trust an honest man, he is offended and displeased. This is what I'm acutely aware of in those moments leading up to confrontation. 
God, you have done so much. I'm not responsible for what happened. And that one, that one, that one, that was all you. I know you're going to show up again. I don't doubt that you'll be there at that meeting. Will you please get in the car with me on the way there? <laughs> That's what I'm feeling, right? I need to trust him. And so what I am doing in those moments is what we're going to see uh, later as I am actively repenting every moment. God, this is, I should not be afraid of them. Forgive me. I should not be afraid of what's getting ready to happen. Forgive me. I've seen your power. Forgive me. I've seen you take us through the Red Sea. Forgive me. I've seen your power in, in the pillar of fire. I've seen your, your power in, in, the, in the cloud. I've seen your power at Sinai. I've seen you do things in my life. Forgive me for fearing. And so what we see from this Old Testament background of Peter's teaching in 1 Peter, 13, or 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 is that reverencing the Lord Christ in our hearts means this. First of all, feeling that to displease Christ is more fearful than the threats of men. I, there's a sense of shame that I feel from not trusting God in the moment and being afraid of men. So I have this this feeling that to displease Christ is more fearful than the threats of men. I'm not worried about what they're going to do to me. I'm, I'm feeling convicted that I don't trust God. But I think more specifically, since what displeases Christ most is unbelief, reverencing him means setting our minds on his promises and trusting in them with all our heart. I'm fighting for faith in those moments. Fighting for faith. When we, when we sing the song, Our Hope, but I... I hope you don't feel that it is too childish, with, except the, the line of a flashlight. Um, that song is fantastic. It comes from a children's album, and we want to share that with our, our congregation as we have children in our congregation every week. But it is a fantastic. He is our help. He is our help, and we, particularly as Baptists, forget that so often. He is our help. We're fighting for faith. The song that we're going to sing after the sermon is, Oh, Help My Unbelief. Help my unbelief. Fight for faith. How can we fight for faith? Because we got God. It comes back to that every single time. So to reverence Christ as Lord means really to believe that Christ, not our human opponents, is truly in control of events. To have such a reverence in our hearts is to maintain continually a deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as the reigning Lord and King who even now has angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. We've got God. We need not fear men. We reverence Christ as Lord and as holy. So when we look then at the next part of the text, it says always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. How many of you have heard this verse before? This one comes flying through Awana all the time as you grow up, right? And we, I never heard the first half or the second half. For some reason, we're just supposed to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Sometimes you'll hear for the hope that's within you. But it never comes with, in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. And it certainly never comes with gentleness and respect. We're making, we're, we're making militant Awana cubbies, Right? Give a defense. I can give a defense. I'm eight. This is, this is not what we're going for here. It's paired together with these two other things because the stance of Christians towards unbelievers must never be just passive. Don't fear them. Stand back or neutral. 
Peter doesn't stop with an admonition not to fear. He goes on to encourage preparation for active witness, which will win the unbeliever to Christ. This isn't new for him. Peter envisages the need to respond to allegations of wrongdoing which Christians face from their opponents. And so he says, always be prepared to make a defense. But since the questioning is concerning the hope that is in you, Peter must be assuming that the inward hope of Christians results in lives so noticeably different that unbelievers are prompted to ask why they're so distinctive. What makes your life distinctive? What makes your life distinctive? What are your distinctives as a family, particularly men? As you lead your family, what are the distinctives that set your family apart from the other ones on the teams, from the other ones at school, from the other ones at the office? What is distinctive about your life? What makes you distinctively Christian and not just a good moral person? I was feeling really good about myself as uh, we were pulling our family through the family values. We're working through those uh, simple, simple virtues for our, for our family. Until uh, Adeline began kindergarten, and uh, I don't know if every school system does this, but Riverside in particular has their kindness, be kind t-shirts that they wear like once a week, and kindness is like the chief virtue of man and the end goal of all things. Um, and, and then I was like, all right, well, they stole my, my thunder, right? No, no, because it, be kind. What happens if a kid raises their hand and says, why? What's the teacher going to say? Do we think about that? <laughs> you, you've got a class full of like 30 kids, which is crazy. But you have a class full of kids that have shirts on that say, be kind. Right? And little Johnny's over in the corner and he looks down and he's like, why? Why am I, why am I being kind? How do you answer that? How do you answer that in your own family when you sit down at the table and you tell them to keep their hands to themselves? Be kind to your sister. Why? Why? What's your why? What restrains you from just doing what you want to do? What's your why? And for some of us, it's simple fear, and that's the way that the school system works. Why, little Johnny? Do you like recess? Do you like eating with your friends? Do you like not having to go to the principal's office? Are you fear, 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 fear? For the Christian, what makes kindness distinctive is the kindness of God to us. The kindness of God to us. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's what makes it distinctive. Love each other. Love is the chief end of man. Love all things. One love. Particularly this month as we see in June. One love. Why? The world has no answer. The world has absolutely no answer. What makes love distinctively Christian is that love is this, one who lays their life down for another. We love because God first loved us. That is distinct love. And so as Christians live out a life of distinct Kindness of distinct love, joy, pace, or love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. As we live out those things, they're distinctively Christian. They're distinctively godly. That, that kind of living, that kind of hope, that kind of trust and faith 
in Christ is what makes people ask. That is the distinctive life that Peter's talking about. That kind of Christian motivation should be so distinctive that Christians should always be ready or prepared to give an answer. Particularly when we think about the fact that in hostile situations, the opportunity for witness to Christ often comes pretty unexpectedly. There are very few times in our life that we are uh, aware of a meeting on Tuesday that we have to get ready for. Normally they just come and we deal with them in the moment. And so the Christian who's not always ready to answer will miss it. Now, before we get into how to do that and what that particularly means, I, I have to address this idea of gentleness and reverence. The witness that we give, and I would say for the sheep at least, almost all the time it should be this. All right? There are moments, again, as a, as a shepherd that I, I have a rod. <laughs> I'm trying to expose wolves. That's not your job. Wolves will eat you. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to expose wolves. The sheep comes in and it looks funny. And he starts acting different, and he's like drooling as he looks at the other sheep. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to tap him with a rod. He's going to snarl at me. And I'm going to hit a little harder with the rod. He keeps saying he's a sheep. Not sure I believe him at this point, particularly as it starts to fall off and I start to see creepy-looking wolf. At that point, I realize it's a wolf. And that things change, right? We'll talk about that in a moment. But for you, and for me as a sheep, but particularly for, for the people of God, gentleness and reverence is what is given. Not attempting to overpower the unbeliever with the force of human personality. Now, keep in mind here, this is with an unbeliever. My example I just gave is a, a wolf that looks like a sheep. This is different. Anytime that I'm with an unbeliever, gentleness and reverence, careful kindness, that comes with the territory. I'm not trying to overpower them. I'm not trying to use my personality or force or aggressive on them. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to quietly persuade the listener, just like he did me. I'm a little sad that in every commentator that I read considering this, no one mentioned it. This is Peter. Like, cut a dude's ear off, Peter. Right? Rebuke Christ, Peter. The guy that pulled a sword out and cut off a soldier's ear for approaching him after Judas betrayed him. He's the guy who's saying with gentleness and reverence, okay, Peter, it's a pretty, pretty high bar you raised right there. That's what he's asking for. Now, again, there's a measure of sharpness that needs to come with one who claims to be a sheep. But as it becomes clear that they're a wolf... The tone can and should shift to that of sadness, at their despair, at their hopelessness. Precisely what we're talking about today. You see, in that meeting, it became clear that they're not a sheep. They're indeed a wolf. And as it became clear that they were a wolf, and I no longer needed to rebuke them for being a false sheep, it became a sense of, of sadness for them. Despair, the hopelessness that they are in. And a call out of that. If you want to exercise compassion, recognize that they don't have God. I'm not trying to sound like a broken record, but that's where it starts. You have God. They do not. If they die apart from God, they will never ever have him. They will live an eternity of suffering. That should cause compassion. 
There's room in the church for discipline, Matthew 18. There's room for discipline on a sheep who's acting like they shouldn't be to bring them back to faithfulness. There's exposing that needs to happen for wolves who look like sheep and want to kill and devour and destroy. But for those who are lost and have no second thoughts about it, there's a hopelessness in their life that should cause compassion in the hearts of the people of God as we see their hopelessness. John Piper is particularly helpful here in exposing what this hope should be. I want to read an extended portion from him. He said, It's become clearer to me than ever before that the reason that we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. And if our hearts are not full of hope and the promises of Christ, then here is what happens when an occasion arrives to make a case for our hope. We sense it as a duty to defend doctrine instead of a delight to tell somebody why we are so hopeful. I see like I've never seen before that witnessing will always be a burdensome duty to defend a doctrine as long as Christianity means for us simply accepting certain doctrines as true and keeping a certain list of do's and don'ts. So many people in the church have simply inherited the notions of church life and the motions that come with it and outward morality and piety, but the heartfelt reality of Christ and joyful hope in his promises are foreign to their experience. Such people can always make a case for a doctrine, but they cannot make a case for the hope within them because they don't feel any hope brimming up within their hearts. What this means then, just as the text says, is that the way to get ready to make a case for your hope is to get hopeful. That is what is so exciting. It, it, it simplifies matters. Don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody else's questions. Apply yourself to settling the questions of your own heart. We have to find for ourselves reasons enough to get over our fear of men and have a lively hope. Catch this. This is the crux of it all. If our own hope does not spring up from something Christ did and said, then it is a mere sham to try to make a case for anyone else to hope in Christ. But if we search out the promises of Christ and meditate on his character and work for the sake of banishing our own fear and kindling our own hope, then this very act of reverence in Christ for ourselves will be the best preparation for making a case for our hope to others. That should be an exciting and liberating discovery for us. If your own hope doesn't spring up from something that Christ did and said who he is to you, the fact that you've got God, then it's a sham, it's a lie for you to try to make a case for anyone else to hope in Christ. Hope in Christ because he's sovereign. How have you seen his sovereignty in your life? Hope in Christ because he died for you. How are you living in his death and resurrection? I can defend doctrine all day long. It's, it's like my job. Those that like apologetics, defending the faith, can do that all day. But it's never going to be convincing if it's not born from hope. We're not defending ideals. We're defending our hope. We're not persuading with principles. We're persuading with love. 
Love that gave itself for us. Those are two entirely different things. Should we have a firm grasp of our theology? Yes. Does it lead us to a better walk with God? Absolutely. Is that the foundation of your hope? Absolutely not. Our primary activity in preparing to witness is to keep our own hearts happy in God. Morning by morning, we have to go to the Word, not to anxiously amass arguments for every possible rebuttal somebody might have. That's precisely what Jesus was against in Luke 21. People always want me to give them a script about what they should say, how to defend a specific argument. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. No, we go to the Word because we are so desperately needy. Our own hope wanes. We have fears that need to be overcome by the promises of God. We have doubts that need to be answered. The fight of faith is waged on our knees with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. And when we emerge from that encounter with God, with a renewed and a lively hope in His promises, then we will be ready to make a case for our hope. God only calls us to tell others the reasons which that very day are making us hopeful in Christ. You catch that? God only calls you to tell other people the reasons which that very day are making us hopeful in Christ. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I don't have much hope, get hopeful. <laughs> you know where it's at. It's in the Word. You know that you have a paraclete, a helper, the Holy Spirit. You know that you have a body that will build you up together. We, lo we lose hope because we're hopeful on all the wrong things. The person that comes to you and says, I just don't have faith, not like you've got faith. I don't have hope, not like you've got hope. That's a lie. We all have faith. We all have hope. It's just misplaced. It's just misplaced. Tim Keller tells a story about a, a wealthy financier in New York who said those very things to, to some of his friends. He said, no, 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 you have tons of hope. You've got literally millions of hope and faith. But the problem is, is when you lose those millions of hope and faith, you find that it was on the wrong thing. Put your hope in God. Reverence Him as holy. Recognize that you, believer, have got God. You're the blessed one. Why? To make Him known. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Ralph Winter, the director of the U.S. Center of World Mission, says this. He says, we may do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the whole Bible. That unless and until in faith the future of the world becomes more important than the future of the church, the church has no future. As Jesus put it, the most dangerous thing you can do is seek to save your own life. Our mission as a church is to take the gospel to the world. We don't have to worry about building the church. Jesus does that. I will build my church. We worry about the mission of God to take the gospel into 
the world. And until the future of the world becomes more important than the future of the church, the church has no future, he says. Our call is to be that picture of that hope to call people to know him. As you have got God, we now go make him known. He tells us to have a good conscience or keep our conscience clear, good, morally, right. It's demanding far more than outward morality. That, as Luke would call it, is called bowl washing, right? Outside of your bowl is polished clean, but an inside is filthy. A whitewashed tombs. A tomb that looks nice on the outside, but inside is death and decay. It's not simply mere outward morality. But at the same time, it's not implying that we're looking for sinless perfection. Certainly Romans 6 has words to say about that. But it does imply that a Christian should aim to have a good conscience before God. And we can do this in two ways. One, avoiding conscious or willful disobedience to God throughout each day. I was talking to someone the other day. Frustrated that they're, they're struggling to forget who they are in God. The fact is that you're even struggling in the first place. Don't, don't lose sight of that. The fight for faith is the point. The victory is not yours to have now. The victory is yours to have on the day, not now. And so every time that the Spirit is faithful in your life, as you walk in faithfulness of keeping you from purposeful, willful decisions of disobedience against God is a grace. It's a great grace. That leads to a clear conscience. And then number two, continuing to practice immediate repentance and prayer and faith and forgiveness whenever you become aware of any sin in your life. At Renovation, we have what's called DNA groups. It's where we walk through for ever um, 20 lessons uh, that are our core discipleship uh, material. And, and the entire pattern of what we do in that material is repentance and faith. Being aware of the sin in our life, which is more challenging than most people would think, actually becoming aware of it, and then living in a pattern of repentance and faith. And so the example that I gave earlier of fighting for faith in the moment before those meetings is a literal moment-by-moment repentance and faith. My heart is twisted and pulling and saying, fear man. The Spirit takes over and says, fear God. I repent. I have faith. And my heart twists. And then it twists back. That's moment by moment repentance and faith. What's the alternative? I give in to fear. I give in to fear. We have to have that moment by moment aspect. Otherwise, it's just moment. And it stays that way. Fight for faith. Repentance and faith is our regular pattern that leads to a clear conscience. One specific warning I think would be helpful here, particularly as Americans who are certainly blessed. We have all these, these different ways of, of attaining what we want. It would be this. In suffering, avoid self-pity. Avoid self-pity. The danger is that in the midst of our suffering, we're going to say, after all I've been through... I deserve this. 
that's self-pity. That's using suffering to justify sin. That's not how it works. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead. Brought to life in God on His payment of His accord through His power. We deserve nothing. And so no matter how much suffering we do, even for righteousness sake, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It doesn't accrue you anything. You don't deserve anything. And the danger is, and I certainly know this, in self-pity, after all I've been through, after, after that meeting where they slandered me, after that meeting where they, they tore me down and insulted me, after all the stuff that I bear, after all this, I can justify about anything that I want to. But not to God. The danger is that self-pity comes in and makes us the one on the cross. But even Jesus didn't do that. Even he didn't do that. And so when we look at this, at this passage, we see a, a pretty, pretty high call. So what? That when you're slandered, when you're slandered, do you know what it means to be slandered? It's abuse. It's abuse. It's verbal abuse. It's not physical abuse. It's verbal abuse. Someone's speaking evil of, in this particular case, you. And the idea of reviling implies insulting or threatening speech. And Peter uses these words often, and he's always talking about a pattern of life. Those that are revilers, those that are slanderers, it is their character, it's a pattern of life, it's who they are. And so in the same way that I say repentance and faith is a moment-by-moment thing, are you a repentancer and faither? Is that who you are? It's the same way in that they are a moment-by-moment slanderer, reviler. As the Proverbs would say, a scoffer. It's who they are. And so as this abuse comes, we do what? Have a good conscience. Why? So that those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. You see, the hope is that opponents will be put to shame, but it's not the idea that their shame is something good in itself, but that it will issue in the silencing of their slander and subsequently in their considering and believing the gospel. When I deal with a sheep who's actually a wolf, the change is this. As a sheep, I'm rebuking them. I'm rebuking them. I'm saying, what you're doing does not fit the pattern of the scripture. It is not Christ-like. It is not what First John is calling us to do. It is not what it looks like to walk in the spirit. You are walking in the flesh. That's a rebuke. I'm trying to, in a sense, crush them. So that they will see, that they will repent, that they will believe. But when it becomes clear that they are a wolf, they are lost. They're not just walking in disobedience. They're still dead. When that shift comes, there's still a crushing that needs to happen. But it's not, of, it's not of what they're doing. It's a crushing of their hope. The fact that they need to have exposed their hopelessness. In this most recent case, the issue is that they didn't belong anywhere. That should be crushing. 
It was intended to be. But it's not malicious. Because on one hand, you don't belong anywhere. You have no family. You're not part of a church. You don't have a home. You don't have anything. You don't leave it there. See, that's heartbreaking. Christ calls you to a new family, calls you to a home forever, calls you to love and care that you can't ever pay back, and calls you to a hope that will lead you to eternity with Him. That's the call. Expose hopelessness so that they might see what's available. When we talk about putting them to shame, it's the idea that they're self-condemned. When you live with a good conscience and someone accuses you, it just falls right off. And they look like a fool. That's the point. But their foolishness exposes their death. And where there is death, life can be brought to it. Back to the beginning, the other side of the sandwich, the top piece of bread. They'll revile your behavior because you're shining light into darkness. And as death is exposed, life can come. Verse 17 tells us this, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The same thing that happened in verse 14 where it's unusual. The same thing is true here. It should be unusual for one to suffer for doing good that if that should be God's will. It is God's will for you to suffer because of the brokenness of this place. But it should be unusual that you suffer for doing good. But why is it better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong? Well, in this context, it's because this, this wrongful suffering patiently endured is so remarkable that it becomes a powerful form of witness, leading unbelievers to salvation. Because this has already happened. In chapter 2, verse 12, the idea of that they will be found in Christ on the day of visitation. The same appeal was just made at the top of this chapter. For wives with unbelieving husbands, the idea of a wife living the way she does is that her unbelieving husband will be found in Christ. Now the whole point is the church going forth with light, bringing life to death where there is no hope. Now, as much as I, I feel a little like I'm dropping off a cliff here because I want to land on verse 18. I want to land on verse 18. That's where he's going. It's that pattern that we talked about. It's the pattern that we talked about. This understanding is, is confirmed for us in, in verse 18. It shows that Christ himself suffered unjustly, that he might bring us to God. Verse 18 gives us because aspect, right? We have four and then four again. It's building. He's going somewhere. He lands on verse 18. Peter's reasons are that we are so blessed by God that if we endure unjust suffering for the salvation of others, you have all the blessings you need. If you are suffering, you're a blessed one because you've got God and you've got more than you need. Enough that other people can have him as well. That's the call. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Back where we started, you've got God. Jesus brought you out of hopelessness to hope. 
that you might have God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much. Your goodness is so evident to us. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Father, it is not right for us to not trust you. You, you, It's not right for us to not trust you simply because of who you are, let alone all that you have displayed. Father, we were without excuse. We have seen. We have seen and know that you are trustworthy. That you are always faithful. But forgive us for doubts. Help us fight for faith. To trust your word, to dig into your word, to find the promises that you've made, that you keep, that you're faithful in, and stand on those. Our courage doesn't come from simple reason or from defending doctrine, but our courage comes from the hope that we have that very day. Stand in the richness and the power of Christ. Father, we know that the church was bought with the blood of Christ, and Father, we want to stand clean in that blood. Knowing that as we go forth as a body, even as we grow, as we go forth as a body, that we would be light into darkness. That we would bring hope to hopelessness. In a way that shows men who are dead that life might happen. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.